I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn yet again to the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 9, and we come yet again to verse 6. I was 18 years old, fresh out of high school. And you need to understand something about 18-year-old Scott Howington. I was arrogant and I was cynical. I knew it all, so I thought. And I just had this way of looking at the world and not trusting anything because I had it going on. I was a high school graduate. I had made it. Well, something happened when I was 18 year old, 18 years old in August of that year. I saw the ocean for the first time in my life. Now you need to understand why that's a big deal. I grew up in Kansas, okay, near the geographical center of the United States. The largest body of water I had seen to date at that point was Wilson Lake Reservoir in Russell, Kansas. Uh, I had, because our family always took the same vacation, I had crossed over the Mississippi River umpteen times to the point where it got kind of boring. But when I was 18 years old, one of my aunts worked for a company where the CEO of the company and the founder had a cottage in North Carolina at Nags Head near Kitty Hawk. This cottage had five bedrooms and four bathrooms, but yet he called it a cottage. Now, when I think of a cottage, I think of just this little boxy house. My aunt and uh, my mom and her, three of her sisters, including the aunt that worked for the company, and my uncles and my dad, my two sisters and I, we went and we spent a week at this cottage in Nagshead, North Carolina. Now, everybody else got a bedroom. I got the sunroom porch. But it was August. We were on the beach. It was great. You could walk out the back door of the cottage, up over a sand dune, and there it was. The Atlantic Ocean, right there out our back door. I was in awe of the ocean. Several mornings I got up. At that point in my life, I thought maybe I would become a professional photographer. So I had a camera with me, and I thought maybe, maybe if I got up early enough one morning and got out, I could catch a beautiful sunrise. Maybe I could get it published and make millions of dollars and just be set. Well, that didn't happen, but I did get up several mornings and walked out and just spent time alone staring at this vast expanse of water. The waves crashing endlessly on the shore just mesmerized me. Now, I knew a little bit about geography. I knew that some 3,000 miles away from where I was standing was something in Europe. I found out later it was Portugal. But, but I didn't know that. You know, at the time, it was just I had never seen anything that vast, anything that expansive, anything that amazing. It, I had never seen anything like that. And it became 
my first word picture. And right now, somewhat of a lasting word picture of something that seemed never-ending. You see, it's very, very hard, nigh unto impossible, for you and me as humans to get a grasp on something eternal, something everlasting. We're bound by time. We're limited by space. We're truly, each moment, only living in the moment. We only have this moment. Oh, I know we all have. You have and I have. We have plans for this afternoon. But the reality is none of us actually know exactly how this afternoon is going to go. We know how we want it to go because we are finite. We are in the moment. There are fewer and fewer of our numbers who can remember an event that we commemorated this past Tuesday. Eighty years ago, Pearl Harbor was bombed. Eighty years ago, the United States was attacked. Contrary to popular opinion, I wasn't alive then. And there are less and less and less people who can remember that time. That's the funny thing about time. Some of you who may remember that time can now almost remember it like it was yesterday. But other times, time seems to drag on. In our passage this morning, we're going to consider the third description of the one of whom Isaiah wrote. Isaiah told the people of Israel, namely King Ahaz, that one day a son would be born, a child would be born. One day a son would be given. And he said that his name would be called, and he gave these characteristics. We saw that his name would be called, he would be characterized by wonderful counselor. One who could do amazing things, he would be wonderful, and yet counselor, one who understood us, who knew us, who experienced life as we did. We saw last week, he would be mighty God, one who was powerful and able to do all things, and yet God himself who would visit us and dwell among us. And today we will explore the depth of everlasting father and both of those terms provide challenges for us on the one hand it's that challenge of everlasting i hope maybe you have a word picture for you that helps you see that that at least get a grasp of everlasting now i've had the privilege now of seeing both the atlantic and the pacific oceans and and it, and, and at different times in my life most recently several months ago the pacific and I remember standing there at the Pacific Ocean, just staring out into the vastness and just, just being amazed. And so those oceans become my word picture of everlasting. And we, we've, but, but it's hard to grab a hold of that. And the other challenge for some of us, and, and well, because we live in a time where nothing lasts forever. I mean, humanly speaking, we know we don't last forever, Right? I mean, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day. We were at a basketball game, and I said, Do you know that I used to be able to stand 
underneath the rim of the basketball goal at a stance and I could jump up and grab the rim, I can't do that anymore. I, I, one, I don't have the desire, but I don't have the energy to do that anymore. I used to be able to run for miles. I don't do that anymore. Things change. And, and not only that, nothing we have lasts because either it wears out or there's planned obsolescence. That computer you bought yesterday, you better start saving up. They say you need to replace it in at least five years. It's planned obsolescence. Everything they change and everything, it starts to get old. So that's one challenge we have. What's everlasting? How do we grab a hold of that? And the other challenge we have is simply this. I am fully aware of those who, the moment I said everlasting father, struggle with the concept of God describing himself as father. Maybe their own experience was not a positive experience with a father. And so I would say to you for now, hold on with me, hang in there, because we're going to deal with that as we move along. But first, let's just focus on what Isaiah tells us. Isaiah says he shall be called, or his name shall be, Everlasting Father. He is everlasting. He is forever. That is an amazing concept. We have to remember that our Lord is not bound by time or by space. Our Lord is not limited by gravity. Nothing holds him back. So even in my ocean illustration, that's limited because we know Portugal's on the other side. There's that reality that with God, there's nothing on the other side. He just keeps going on and on forever. And, and, and we have to remember that the Bible tells us in the beginning, God created. God is the beginning. God is before the beginning. God is the self-existent one. God always is always will be. That concept is so hard to grasp because I need a beginning point. I was born one day. I had a beginning point. You were born. You had a beginning point. God doesn't. And I think why it's important that we look at this part of God is we have to remember something. There are many, many things about God you and I can't explain. There are things about God we, we just can't wrap our minds around. And I think there's value in that. For me, there's value in that because if I could explain everything there is to explain about God, if I could boil it down into all kinds of simple, neat little formulas and just explain everything about God, then I would actually be really making God in my own image. I would be kind of making God look a little bit like me or like I think I ought to look. That's what we call mythology. Roman and Greek mythology took these deities and they kind of gave them human qualities. And it's funny, I do that sometimes. Maybe you do too. See, when I think God likes all the same people I like and God likes all the same things I like, but God doesn't like the people I don't like and God doesn't like the things I don't like, that I've kind of made God in my own image. Because, see, God says he's love and he's grace and he's justice and he's merciful 
Jesus would say the rain falls on the just and the unjust. God is so much greater than you and I. He's greater than my explanations. And the fact that he's everlasting is proof of that. That would prompt Moses to write in Psalm 90 verse 2, God from everlasting to everlasting you are God. Literally from vanishing point to vanishing point. As I stood on that beach in Nags Head, North Carolina, as an 18-year-old kid that had tons to learn, I looked out and eventually the horizon, it, it was just gone. It was just nothing. And, and, and Moses said, God, that's you. I look out beyond and where I can't see anymore, you're still there. The psalmist would say that God's righteousness is forever. Psalm 111, verse 3. That is an encouragement to me. God's righteousness doesn't end at a certain point. It's forever. The psalmist reminds us that he will be praised forever. Psalm 45, 17. We will praise God forever. We're told that his throne, his authority is forever. Psalm 10, verse 16. And I believe it was that and her knowledge of the Scripture and her knowledge of the Old Testament promises that caused Mary to be able to say, I am the Lord's servant, because the angel said he will sit on the throne of his father David and of his kingdom there will be no end. And she knew he was talking about the same one that Isaiah is talking about here, the one who was everlasting. But I think there's practical realities to the everlasting nature of our God. Because our Lord is everlasting, He can say, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I think sometimes we have to take a minute and step back and sometimes maybe look back through some of the most difficult things we may have faced in our life. And as we do that, we're mindful of the fact that God didn't leave me. He didn't forsake me. He was there maybe in the phone call of a friend that said, I'm praying for you. He was there in the individual who came up and said, you know what? I think you need a hug. He was there in the person that just sat and listened as you wept and was there for you. God says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Because God is everlasting, then we can hang on to it when he says, I will come again. There's truth to that. You see, God's not limited by time, so he knows what my future looks like. Oh, I, I have hopes, plans, dreams. I know you do too. But God knows the unplanned changes in my life. He knows where the twists in the road are up ahead that I haven't figured out yet. He knows the things that I'm not aware of yet. And he says, I'll never leave you and forsake you. I'm walking with you. God can lead me. And when I follow him, he will sometimes help me avoid those situations that could have been damaging or hurtful. Take away everlasting. Just, you know, you, you just mark that out of your Bible. Then you don't have the eternal word becoming flesh 
If God's not everlasting, then what we celebrate at this time of year is pretty empty. We have this mere mortal born in questionable circumstances who really can't save, can't guide, can't lead, can't really understand us. He would have no more knowledge of my life or your life than we already have. He would have just been a martyr for a cause. I think it's the mystery of everlasting that seems to be on the mind of the Apostle Paul when he wrote of Jesus. And he wrote this, Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2, 6-8. The everlasting chose to be finite for a time so he could give himself in death for your sins and for mine. But Isaiah is not done there. Isaiah says, the everlasting one is a father. When we say the word father, as I've already mentioned, so many images come to mind. For some, those images invoke just really warm and positive emotions. We think of protection and provision and strength and wisdom and guidance. We think of one that was a loving example. But that's not always the case. Sadly, in our fallen world, there are some very painful emotions that may come to mind for others when they hear that word, Father. There's there's pain and abuse, and neglect, and absence, coldness, or indifference, pressure to perform. And if those negative emotions are welling up in you now, I want to say I'm truly sorry. And just keep hanging with me. My guess is for most of us, there's kind of a combination. Uh, None of us. No, there is, there is not a perfect father on planet Earth. We all make mistakes. Don't believe me? I'll give you the contact information for each of my three children. They'll be happy to tell you. I've made mistakes. Uh, you've made mistakes, Dad. We know that. We all fail. And we all have to sometimes go back and ask for forgiveness for some of those mistakes that we've made. But this morning, I want to ask you this. I want to ask you to remember simply this. No matter what your experience is, try to work to not to bring God down to human frailty. You see, just as you and I don't want someone to judge us by the actions of another, don't judge God by the actions of a father who may not have been what you want him to be. Because God is so much more than that. In fact, I would encourage you to do this. 
Think for a minute today of the ideals that you know a father should have. Think about those qualities he should, should have. What, what are the things you wish your father had done? What are the things you wish he would have said? What are the qualities you longed for in him? And I want you to know that God, your heavenly father, has all of those qualities and so much more. He truly is the best father. And I believe in context here what Isaiah is communicating is, is that the one to come would have the best qualities of a father forever and ever. You see, we see the heart of God throughout Scripture. He reminds us that He is the Father to the fatherless. And in the Old Testament, the Father was the provider and the protector, and the fatherless did not have that. And God says, I'll be that for you. He is the husband to the widow because the widow had no means of support. And God says, I'll be the husband to the widow. I'll be your support. That's his heart. That's the heart of God. He's a God who cares. He's a God who comforts. He's a God who encourages. He's a God who strengthens. He's a God who loves. He's a God who disciplines. And we see in Jesus the Messiah prophesied by uh, here. We see in Jesus the best qualities of a father. Let me share with you this morning some of those qualities. Because not only is God everlasting, not only is he a father, he's a good father. A good father loves without favoritism. We see that in Jesus. Well, I've reminded that earlier. We see it in Matthew uh, as, as one of the places, in Matthew chapter 19. Parents were bringing their children to be blessed by Jesus. And the disciples thought that he was too important for them. And they wanted to send them away. And Jesus rebuked them. And he said, let the little children Come to me. And the Bible tells us that he put his hands on them and he blessed them. I don't think it was from here. I think he got down on his knees. I think he got down on his knees and he pulled those kids to him. He got down on their level. Because he wasn't just about the people that could move him somewhere. He wasn't about the people who could get him from point A to point B. He loved without favoritism. He loved the children every bit as much as he loved anybody that could move on the mission, as it were. He loved the outcasts. He loved the strangers. He loved the lepers. He loved without favoritism. A good father strikes the balance of correcting without condemning. There's a story, I know it gets debated, but it's in John chapter 8. A woman is brought to Jesus. She had been caught in the act of adultery. Oddly enough, they didn't bring the man. So I believe she was set up. The religious leaders want Jesus to condemn her to death. 
And they're ready for it. They're, they've got the softball-sized stones in their hand. They're ready to take her out for righteousness' sake. Remember Jesus in a very subtle and quiet way reminds them after he wrote in the dirt. Some, there's all kinds of scholarly debates about what he wrote in the dirt, my opinion. I think he wrote their name and he started writing the sins he knew about them because he knew everything. That's my opinion. Might not be that, but that's my opinion. Anyway, he said, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. Eventually they left because only Jesus was qualified to cast any stones because he's the holy and righteous God. And do you remember his words to her? Where are they, woman? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. Now you imagine she's there in the dirt, in her shame, in her humiliation. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. I believe her life was changed that day. I believe she came face to face with God and found him to be loving, kind, and fair. A just father who didn't excuse her sin who didn't sugarcoat it, who didn't say, there, there, that's okay. No, he said, you leave your life of sin. You have erred. Even if you were set up, you were wrong. And you go and you pursue something far better than this. He pointed out to her that she could be so much more. That's a good father. He corrects, but he doesn't condemn. A good father forgives and restores relationship. I am too keenly aware of situations in which parents and children have separated and don't speak again, and it is painful for everyone involved. Peter had failed Jesus miserably. After promising to go to the cross and to die for him, Peter stands up and three times says, I don't even know him. And the last one was laced with a little bit of profanity. John 21 tells us that Peter was done. He went back to fishing. And the word used there in John 21 was not just, you know, going to go kick back and kick my shoes off, throw a line in and see if I catch anything. It was, I'm going back to my business. Jesus meets him. And the story is very familiar as they're sitting there eating the breakfast, which Jesus had already provided. He quietly, gently calls Peter back into relationship. Gives him three chances to affirm his love just as Peter three times denied him. And invites him into relationship. Calls him back into service. Reveals to Peter his forgiveness. That's a good father. A good father forgives and restores relationship. Jesus initiated that. Jesus the offended one initiated that. A good father prays. For his children. The word is intercession. 
Romans 8.34 tells us that Jesus is interceding for us right now. Would you believe that? Jesus is praying for you right now. He's praying for your needs. He's praying for things that you don't even know you need prayer for yet. He's praying for you right now. Jesus is concerned about your welfare, your choices, your life. Jesus is thinking about you because a good father doesn't forget his children. And just one more. Uh, I could go on and on. A good father sacrifices for his children. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. If you study the life of Jesus and the character of Jesus, Jesus the child who was to be born, Jesus the son who was to be given, what you find are the qualities of a good father. Not only those I've mentioned, there are others. He reached out to the untouchable, to the leopards and he, lepers, and he touched them. He provided for those in need. He prepared his disciples and trained them to carry on after he ascended to heaven. He, <coughs> he listens. He disciplines. He's a good father. I want you to know, in those moments when our life looks the bleakest, in those moments when the chips are down, when those moments where all the plans have failed and we don't have a plan B. Eternal Father is there. Everlasting Father is there. One of the things about a good father, an everlasting father, he doesn't always stop us from experiencing pain and struggle. But he does give us the resources to move through it. And he helps us to be strengthened through it. And he helps us to move on. Isaiah, one day, got a glimpse. He got a glimpse beyond the horizon. He got a glimpse into the future. And he saw one coming. He saw one coming who was not just a wonderful counselor was not just a mighty God, but was an everlasting Father. The baby that was to be born would be everlasting, forever able to minister to you and me. He's a Father possessing all of the best, <coughs> excuse me, best qualities we could hope for. And He does that forever. And He knows your name. And he invites you this morning to follow him, to learn from him, to find rest in him, to find comfort in his everlasting presence and fatherly strength. And he will be called Everlasting Father. Oh, Father, we come to you and we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this great reminder of who you are. We thank you for this great reminder of how great you are, your everlasting qualities, and yet the tenderness of a good father. And we ask, dear Lord, that today would be a day in which each of us look to you 
And that if we know you, that we say thank you for all that you've done. And if we yet have yet to have a relationship with you, that maybe we could pray as I read that one person prayed once and said, would you be my dad? Would you be my father? Would you come into my life and forgive me my sin and lead me? May we celebrate everlasting father this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.